This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. If you live in Newark, New Jersey, your home has become this little blue dot on an online map maintained by the city. Click on your dot, and the infrastructure beneath your house is revealed where your water comes from and whether that water might have lead in it. Newark's water crisis is boiling over as residents demand Mayor Ross... Well, the water system there has been showing dangerous levels of lead. Worried and angry about lead contamination, Hello. residents of Newark, New Jersey, are demanding bottled water and answers. You know that the water's going to be messed up for all of this time. Why wouldn't we... Why wasn't we told? Christopher Wirth reports for a podcast called The Stakes. He spent the last year investigating lead contamination. 10% of the outlets that are being tested in Newark are above 55 to 60 parts per billion. And the federal standard is 15 parts per billion. So we're talking about several several, several times larger than the federal limit. And how does that compare to a place like Flint? This is it's much higher. You know, we're talking about in Newark four times the federal limit. And there are a lot of questions about how robust that federal limit is anyway. Christopher says the problem with uncovering lead like this is that once it's revealed, you can start to see it everywhere, not just in the pipes underneath Newark's houses, but in the water fountain at the local playground, in the chipped paint on your windowsill and in the soil at the local dog park. At least that's the way it was for him. I got curious about my own house because I live in an old, you know, I think it was built in the 1880s. And I thought it was at that time before I started reporting on lead, I thought your kids were safe. You know, I have two small kids and um, I thought your kids were safe as long as they weren't eating the lead paint chips. That was my that was my presumption. And as I learned more and more, I thought, well, I should get an inspector into my house and just figure out what's going on there. And so I hired this guy. He came in with um, a kit to do lead dust wipe samples. And he found lead just all over my house, lead dust, you know, on the floors in my apartment where my kids are playing. He found loads like, you know, well above the safety standard. And, and that's what really startled me to find out that it was just everywhere. And it wasn't just about those, those lead paint chips. Even if you don't have visibly deteriorating lead paint in your house, it turns into a dust. It went into the paint as a powder and it comes out, it comes off as a powder and, and it can be everywhere. How do you do this reporting and not freak out that it's everywhere? Oh, I did freak out. <laughs> <laughs> I've totally freaked out. Today on the show, we investigate the nasty legacy of lead in Newark, in New York City, and in all of our communities, really. Christopher spent the last year uncovering lead not just in his own house, but in kindergarten classrooms and public parks. And it's given him some ideas about what we do now. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Newark has been dealing with this water problem for years now. It seemed to start back in 2016. That's when 30 local schools shut down their water fountains, citing elevated lead. At the time, local officials said the city water was still safe. But last month, the Environmental Protection Agency begged to differ. They sent a letter to the mayor and said that they were unable to assure Newark residents that their health is fully protected when drinking tap water, even if the water was filtered. Christopher Worth has been watching all this happen from across the river in New York. He works for WNYC, the local public radio station. He says the situation in Newark is still evolving. At first, officials thought the problem was with one reservoir in particular. But more and more homes seem to be testing positive for lead in the water. I would anticipate, just based on the the, the evidence that I've seen, that this is much bigger than just those areas of, of the city that Newark is focused on. So now we have Newark recommending some amount of people just drink bottled water. But some people, oh, you can use water. But we don't really know if we're telling the right people to do the right thing. That's true. Yes. Yeah. What drives me nuts about this Newark story, and really all lead stories, is that we've known high levels of lead exposure could lead to health problems for decades, centuries even. Certainly, you know, in past centuries, we have known, humans have known that lead is a potent neurotoxin, although they weren't, you know, totally clear on what it does, but... You, they would see really extreme cases, right? And well into the 20th century, that was where the focus was because we did not have the type of regulations in place to protect people from extreme exposure, particularly children from extreme exposure. And so you that the focus was on those very acute cases because they were so acute. What did an extreme reaction look like? Extreme reaction where it was coma, uh, death, Um, and severe brain damage. You know, a kid would become acutely sick, possibly be taken to the hospital, and the after effects of that, once the lead was, you know, if they could get the lead out of the body in the hospital, doctors, you know, very clearly saw that that these kids had nowhere else to go. They went right back into these older homes. This was, you know, uh, particularly a problem in in older um, urban areas. And they would have to be sent right back into those old homes. And so then the exposure would would occur again. But even if you could get the lead level down, the level of exposure caused extreme brain damage, you know, permanent extreme brain damage. So when did we begin to get the idea that lower levels of lead could be a problem, too? Yeah. So a lot of this boils down to a guy named Herbert Needleman. Herbert Needleman was a doctor who began to see the impact of lead as a medical resident in the 1950s. Later, as a child psychiatrist, he started to wonder if some of his patients, the ones with learning disabilities, might actually be experiencing a kind of lead poisoning, too. So he 
became very curious about if lead is causing this extreme brain damage at these high levels, well, then what in the world is it doing at low levels of exposure? There must be millions of kids in this country who are exposed to levels of lead that isn't that aren't landing them into the hospital, but it must be having some effect. And so to figure that out, he actually developed this really ingenious study. This study was called the Tooth Fairy Project. Dr. Needleman was looking for a way to measure lead exposure throughout childhood. The problem was that lead doesn't stay in the blood for very long. Instead, it gets stored in the bones and the brain and the teeth. So Needleman came up with this idea to go to local schools and offer families cash for their children's baby teeth. Then he tested those teeth for lead. You know, I think they collected, you know, a few dozen teeth in the first study, and they started to find that there were these really high levels of concentrated lead within those teeth. And as he started to expand this research, it became very clear that we had millions of kids in this country that were exposed to levels of lead that while they weren't um, so bad that it was landing them in the hospital, they had quite a level of exposure. And he started to integrate aptitude tests into hmm. his study. So he could he could find the kids who had been exposed over long periods of time to lead, who had high concentrations of lead in their teeth, and then he could compare that with how they performed on various aptitude tests. How'd they do? And the kids who had higher levels, higher concentrations of lead, performed significantly lower on these aptitude tests. And so he was able to say in a very concrete way, these low levels of exposure, even though they're not putting the kid into a coma, even though they're not causing severe brain damage, they are having some effect. It's interesting because the research keeps coming back around to the schools. The schools keep being this place where people are going to see the impact, whether it's you know Newark looking at their water fountains or whether it's Herb Needleman. And Herb Needleman told this story that really stuck with me, like, years after I read it, which is he noticed a bunch of kids with really high lead levels at a Catholic school. And he was a little surprised because he was used to seeing kids who were poorer or kids who were black and brown with high lead levels. But these were a bunch of white kids. And he went to the school and he's like, why Why do these kids have these high lead levels? And the nuns at this Catholic school asked him to stay for lunch. And he, they swept up paint chips from this, that were coming off the ceiling off of the lunch table before he ate. And then he noticed that around the corner was like a lead smelting factory. And it's one of these things where you just realize, God, this stuff is everywhere. It was at the time. Yeah, that's true. And at the time that, that Needleman was doing that work, that is really how we thought about lead exposure, is that it only affected Black and Latino communities. If you actually go through you know, the internal memos that the lead industry traded back and forth between, you know, there was a lead industries association that was actually very powerful. And, you know, a number of lead based, you know, companies that use lead were part of this association. And that's how they talked about it, was that it was something that only affected black and brown communities, and that it really wasn't a problem for white communities. And so therefore, you could kind of brush it under the rug and say, actually, this isn't a problem. Actually, it's just a, a you know, an inner city problem. But what that research showed is that, no, 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 it, it actually, it is also affecting those white kids out in the suburbs. It is also affecting those white kids in the Catholic schools. And, you know, I talked to Irv Shapiro, who was the dentine expert who worked with Needleman on those early um, Tooth Fairy Project studies. And, and he said, you know, I think 
that it was showing that this was affecting white kids as well, that had a huge impact on how people paid attention to this. Hmm. And it was after that research that we started to get much of the legislation that we have today, which, you know, in 1978, nationally, lead paint was banned. In the 1970s is when the U.S. started to phase lead out of gasoline. And that has dramatically lowered the lead burden in our bodies, you know? So our kids today have a much lower lead burden than than you and I did when we were born. I was born in 1977. And in 1977, the average lead level, the blood lead level in a kid was 15 micrograms per deciliter. And if you test in New York City with 15 micrograms today, the health department would be knocking on your door within a couple of days because that is considered a considerably high lead level. In a way, the story of lead in this country is a success story. Like Christopher says, lead levels in kids have plummeted. But the problem is that all that lead in the environment didn't go away. It's still in Newark's water lines. It's still underneath those new coats of paint in old houses. So earlier this year, Christopher decided to do some testing of his own, try to see how much lead was left behind. He tested New York City's soil, water fountains, and inside New York City's public schools. Did the schools want you reporting on this? No, I don't think the schools wanted me reporting on this at all. Um, So, you know, at the time that I was looking at starting to look into lead, um, you know, there were a number of city council uh, proposals, bills that were going through the city council that um, that dealt with lead. So they were, you know, they were doing something about they had bills about lead in soil, lead in water, you know, lowering the the safety standards that we have in New York City. And so as I was looking into these this issue, you know, my daughter had just started first grade. Um, she's in a very old school building in Brooklyn. And I was in her classroom for a parent event. And I look at the radiator in her in, in her classroom. And it is covered in peeling paint. And, you know, having delved into this issue, I'm like, that's not right. And so I walk over there. You know, these, these pieces of paint are just pe- like falling off of this radiator. And, and I pick one of those pieces up. And I put it in a little plastic baggie and I take it with me and I send it to the lab that I'd been working with um, to do some of the other reporting that we've been doing. And it comes back and it is 11 times the city's current standard for what is constitutes lead paint. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So after finding that one paint chip, what did you do then? Yeah. So I, I got interested in this as a story. And so I immediately contacted the Department of Education. And sent them a, an email saying, you know, I'd like some information on your protocols for testing, you know, lead paint and for lead dust in New York City schools. What, you know, how do you approach this? What do you do? Um, the initial response I got back was that, you know, we paint these school buildings every five years. We don't think lead is a problem in our schools. I didn't find that to be a satisfactory answer. <laughs> <laughs> so I kept I kept pressing for, you know, well, actually, I want to see the protocols. I'd like to know what you're doing. Um, I did not get a response for many, many, many months. And so over the course of that time, we started to contact schools. And I isolated my, you know, the schools I was looking at to schools built before 1960, because that's when lead paint was banned in New York City. Although I found documentation that shows that it was the lead, con, lead paint continued to be used in New York City schools until about 1980. 
and so, oh my gosh. and so, so, but I, I focused on the older schools because I thought that would be the you know the best first place to look. And so I just started contacting principals. I started going to PTA meetings at these schools, talking to the PTA officers at the end of the meetings. You know, saying, "Can we can we come in and test these schools?" And I was able to get inside four of them. Oh my gosh! It, it was very difficult. Most principals, most PTAs, did not want to take part. You know, many of them expressed concern about being singled out. They didn't want a story coming out about their particular school, hmm. you know. Um, so I, I was able to get inside those four schools, collected the lead dust samples that I was looking for, and they just were phenomenally high. Uh, a pre-K classroom in Manhattan tested 170 micrograms uh, How does that per compare to... The, the standard in the city right now is 10 micrograms, and it's going to go down to five in 2021. And kindergarten and first grade classrooms in that same school tested at over 1,000 on the floor. There was a windowsill, which was more like a, a radiator cover, a radiator cover in this classroom where kids kept their like notebooks and that sort of thing. And there was a big spot on the, on the ceiling where paint was just falling down, you know, clearly there'd been some water damage there or something. And the paint chips were just raining down on this area of the classroom. And I wiped, I, I picked up some of the lead chips and put them in a test tube and sent those off because I wanted to confirm that they were lead paint. But I also did a, a dust wipe sample there, 30, th over 33,000 micrograms there. But the funny thing, listening to you, this sounds not that different than what Herb Needleman was finding decades ago, maybe 50 years ago, which is big chunks of paint flaking off the ceiling and off the wall. And the kids are right there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think it, so um, after our story came out, WNYC story came out, the city, you know, at first the mayor called our results into question because I'm not EPA certified. Um, but then uh, the city, the Department of Education said, out of, out of an abundance of caution, we are going to go in and do um, some inspections because the health code in New York City requires the, the Department of Education to annually go through and do what, what's called a, a visual inspection. So you look for peeling paint. And if you find it, you're supposed to remediate it in, in pre-year they use is pre-1985 schools. Um, but they, they said out of an abundance of caution, we're going to go in, we're going to look at these schools, and um, we'll, we'll make the results public. They'd never done that before. And so right around the end of the school year, they went in and they started to um, do the inspections. And at the end of July, they actually published some early results out of 5,000 classrooms that they had inspected so far, a little over 900 had come back with le peeling lead paint hazards. So then, like 20%. Yeah, 20%. And then they went and they did another 3,000 because they started to add first grades to their samples. Um, up until that point, until I started asking them, why aren't you including first grades? Because the health code clearly says any classroom with a child under six. And at the start of a first grade year, you have kids who are uh, still five years old. And so they started to add first grades. And they also added um, District 75 schools, which are the schools that serve kids with disabilities. Um, and when as they added those schools, and it was an additional 3,000 classrooms, um, now we're at just over 1,800 classrooms with peeling lead paint hazards, which tells me, which indicates to me that possibly 
DOE that these inspections actually weren't taking place in the way that they were supposed to. Hmm. If you you know if you do a round of inspections out of an abundance of caution and you find that many classrooms, you know that's over that's still over twenty percent of the classrooms that they tested have lead paint hazards, then possibly these inspections weren't taking place in the way that they were supposed to. And we've asked for records of these past inspections. We've yet to get them. So in Newark, we have these lead pipes. In New York City, we're talking about lead paint in the schools. I wonder what you make of these two stories happening at the same time right across the river from each other. Because I'm thinking back to something you said about how the way things changed in the 70s was that you showed that the wealthier kids, the whiter kids were having trouble. And when I look at Newark or Flint, I feel like I look at it and and it feels like the story on repeat. You know, this is a, a community that's embattled, impoverished. But then in New York City, it's a little bit of a different story. And I wonder if you think these stories together might make a difference or, or just how you see a comparison between how the cities are dealing with the issues? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you look at Newark, which is a largely um, black and brown city, and you look at the New York City uh, school system, the vast majority of our kids are, are kids of color, you know, the vast majority of them are. So this is also in New York, it's an, it's an equity issue. And it also, I think, speaks to the level of investment in our cities in what we would call public goods. You know, how much are we willing to invest in our water infrastructure? How much are we willing to, to invest in our school buildings and in education? And I think when you start to see the kinds of lead levels that we have in Newark, in the drinking water, and when you look at the condition of lead paint in New York City schools— um, I think it tells you that we have not, we've probably not invested enough in those types of public goods. Well, I'm glad you said invested because it is a lot of money. Like I saw one, I saw one estimate that it would cost a trillion dollars to abate the lead in the United States, to not just ban the lead paint, but go back and fix it and go fix the lead water lines. So for me, I look at that and I'm like, where are we getting that money? Yeah. Um, you know, this is something that Needleman was really big on. You know, after after he proved that lead was causing harm at these low levels, he, you know, in the night by the 1990s and throughout the 80s, he was really pushing the US to create some kind of a program to go in and remediate the worst cases, right? So in these inner city neighborhoods where you have a lot, you know, deteriorated housing stock, he said, let's put a pot of money together. Let's train unemployed people how to go in and abate these homes. And let's, and let's just get rid of this so this is no longer a problem because it's having such a huge impact on these communities. It's like a Green New Deal it's for like a, lead. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it, you know, there was a point in the Bush, first Bush administration where he thought that this was going to happen. Huh. It never panned out. But I, you know, there are many people who say, this is what we should be doing. We should be putting money towards this. And imagine if we had started in the 90s or in the 80s. Where would we be now? We would be well on our way to eradicating this problem. But because we haven't been willing to invest that kind of money, we've never gotten there. And so there are many people who say, look, let's bring the industry into being part of the solution. And whether that's through a lawsuit, and I, I also talked to Sherwin-Williams' lawyer got in touch with me 
And he clearly said, look, if New York City wants to get mired in another you know, decades-long lawsuit, that's exactly what that will be. The companies really are not, have not come around to the idea of playing some kind of role. Now, there are others who've said, like, look, let's skip all of this, you know, um, lawsuits and decades-long litigation. Let's skip all of that. And let's just create a program that every time you buy a bucket of paint, a dollar goes into a fund that will then allow us to use the, that money for abatement programs. So make the consumers pay for it. The consumers pay for it. And the idea is that if, if, if a lawsuit is actually successful, these companies are going to pass that cost on to the consumers anyway. And so why, why not just bypass all of that and just let's, let's put a tax on the paint that feeds that money directly into a pot of money that we can use to do this kind of work and to pay for it? I think the argument is that if you do a lawsuit, you put a whole bunch of stuff in the public record and you have that argument in public and people have the chance, even if it's 20 years long, to understand what took place. It's true. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's what lawsuits are for, right? I mean, and that's what that's what our courts are for, to, to bring these things out into the light. I don't think many people really, truly understand the scale of what happened um, and just how much lead was put into people's homes and put into these public spaces like schools. You know, we're talking about just millions of metric tons of lead applied to the walls of our of our living spaces. Christopher Worth, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Mary. Christopher Worth is a senior editor at WNYC. He works for a podcast called The Stakes. Go check it out. All right, that's the show. We are back in full effect. If you want to see what I was doing over vacation, go follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. And we have one new crew member. We're about to have more, by the way. But this week, we were joined by Danielle Hewitt. It's her first day, and this show was produced with her help. It was also produced with the help of Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. And I am Mary Harris. I'm going to be back with more What Next tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.